0: Hello, folks, and thank you for another episode of Big Talk. I am your host, Alexander Ashkin, joined today with the amazing Jennifer Raff. She is a professor at University of Kansas, she is an anthropologist, geneticist, New York Times bestselling author, and a former Bloomingtonian who so graciously gave us the opportunity to interview her while she's visiting town. How are you doing this morning, Jenny?
1: I'm great. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to be back in Bloomington.
0: Well, we're so glad that you could be here and talk about your book, Origin A Genetic History of the Americas. It was a huge hit when it released this year in February. Hachette Books did a wonderful job with it, and we're just so excited that you could join us. So first, let's get a little bit of frameworking out of the way. Eugenie Raff, you're a native Midwesterner. Uh, You spent your high school and college years here in Bloomington. And this is sort of when you began your formal studies about anthropology, genetics, molecular biology, and all that sort of stuff. Obviously, environment really impacts people. And even when it comes from uh, psychology to anthropology, we always ask the questions of sort of nature versus nurture. We can all agree that environment sort of shapes how we are and our personalities. Do you think that being in Bloomington, growing up in this area, having a mother who pursued academic higher learning and worked towards a grad, or a doctorate in neuroscience, do you think that you would have perhaps gone through this big process of writing a book and all this sort of stuff if it wasn't for kind of being immersed in an academic world at such
1: a young age? Oh gosh, almost certainly not. Um, I have to say that growing up in Bloomington definitely, definitely made me the person I am. I um, was so lucky to have such wonderful friends and family here in the area, and to be going to, um, hanging around university since I was a little kid, uh, and especially getting to work with the amazing faculty here at IU, I had some incredible role models in Beth and Rudy Raff, who were professors at, in the biology program, um, and they really encouraged my scientific interests, and, um, and in fact, I watched Rudy um, writing books, <laughs> so, you know, seeing that process, although I have to say I never really expected I would write one. I, in fact, I didn't expect that I would, and had no intention of writing a book until my an agent approached me and, and, that, and started that conversation. Mm -hmm. which was about four four or five years ago.
0: Would you have described yourself as a bit of a precocious child? One one part of this whole discussion is that before you were even in college, you ended up reaching out to someone who ended up becoming a bit of an academic mentor to you, Kenrita Kessel, my apologies, uh, to uh, do some... Work within her research laboratory, and this was before you were in your undergrad. Oh,
1: slightly, slightly, you got it slightly backwards. <laughs> so, when I was in high school, my last couple of years, uh, Bloomington North, woo-hoo, um, <laughs> I was in the um, I was in the AP Biology class, and, and one of the things we had the opportunity to do was go work with faculty at IU to do research if we wanted to. Kind of after. A certain point in the semester, and I reached out to Professor Jose Bonner, uh, as a, who was I knew through our martial arts community, and I started working in his lab um, doing yeast genetics uh, and molecular biology. And I continued that all through high, uh, through the end of high school, college, um, and it was in graduate school, just before graduate school, that I met Rika Kasel, and she uh, kindly accepted me
0: as a grad student. So I think a lot of people really wonder how you get into genetics, because that that's in many ways a heady uh, subject, something that you can't just uh, pick up a magnifying glass or even uh, a good quality at home laboratory microscope and actually say, hey, we're going to look at a mitochondrial DNA sequence. The, the thing that also I think fascinates a lot of people when talking to you is that you were a double major throughout school in both anthropology and genetics. Um, When was the point that you kind of realized that these two things could kind of work together? When when did you decide the Reese's peanut butter approach of getting peanut butter and chocolate together? Yeah,
1: I don't, I don't know exactly when it was, but I was, as an undergrad, I, was, I couldn't decide. I loved biology, I loved anthropology. I just majored in both just to kind of explore both of them. And I think I had seen Jurassic Park, of course, uh, the original, not to, to date myself, and I think that came out when I was at the end of high school. I'm not 100% sure on that, I should probably check. But I realized, well, you can't get dinosaur DNA, of course, but you can get ancient DNA, That that was a thing that was happening in the research field. And that would combine my love of archaeology and my love of biology. And so I began exploring that as a subject, as um, my interest in that subject more and more. And then by the time they hired... Dr. Casel, uh, I was pretty set on that's what I want to do, and so it was really lucky that I just stayed here for grad school and and worked with her.
0: Well, we're certainly glad you did, because otherwise we may not be having this discussion today. (laughs) So before we dive into your 2022 New York Times bestseller, Origin, A Genetic History of the Americas, I want to actually point out to people that you did quite a bit of postdoctoral research, wrote quite a few scholarly articles. And one that actually really jumped out to me was a postdoctoral research paper from 2010 that you published alongside Dennis O'Rourke at the University of Utah titled The Human Genetic History of the Americas, the Final Frontier. Now, part of me was a little surprised because uh, you were so gracious to give a little bit of a discussion yesterday at Morgenstern's bookstore and cafe about the process of creating your book. And to see that you had postdoctoral research that seemed so in alignment with this original goal, I was actually surprised to know that you kind of didn't really, this created a backbone a lot for origin, but wasn't really sort of the origin of uh, the book itself. At what point did you think that you were getting a good enough perspective from your various research projects, from working with various groups, that you felt comfortable to take the leap of faith and start sort of doing this meta-analysis that allowed you to look at so many different people's research and disparate uh, fields of study to try and amalgamate this body of evidence about all these different models?
1: Yeah, so first, I'll start out by saying when we published that paper um, back in 2010, um, Dennis and I thought we were being very clever and doing a pun with Star Trek, right? <laughs> These days, I would not use the Final Frontier as a um, as language in the paper because it's very colonial, right? <laughs> and I was just completely ignorant back then and didn't think about the implications. So let me get that out of the way. Okay. But yeah. I think I had always had an interest in the earliest peopling of the Americas in grad school. It was just one of my side interests and in reading the literature on that. But when we wrote that, and when I did the postdoc with Dennis, um, that is one of his main interests. And so I was kind of nurturing that, that interest while I was working with him. But we mostly did um, research in the Arctic. That was kind of our, our, um, our focus there. I would say, though, to actually answer your question, I did not feel like there was a moment in time that I was able to um, really delve into and write this kind of book and this, until I was actually writing it. <laughs> so I, I maintained that interest in the people of the Americas and aspects of it throughout my um, postdoc careers. I had three postdocs. Um, but... You know, I never thought that I would really write a book on it until I was actually, I had a contract and I was writing the book. So I kind of learned by doing.
0: The thing that really stood out to me when I was reading the book, particularly uh, in the earlier chapters, when you're just trying to sort of broach the subject for the readers, something that was sort of fascinating to me was this combination of personal experience, historical narrative, and uh the critical dissection of the actual anthropological archaeological field of study did somebody at Hachette or 12 books perhaps suggest that like hey let's almost structure the early discussions of the book almost making the models and archaeology as a whole almost the main character of discussion Mm -hmm we kind of see the evolution of the whole uh, study from folks like Thomas Jefferson to George McJunkin and so many other folks that it, it creates a, its own narrative arc.
1: We talked about in the, the Morgansterns interview yesterday, um, I was asked what my process for writing the book was and I described it as flailing wildly for four years. And that is absolutely true. I had no idea. What I was doing really. But I had an amazing editor at 12 um, named Sean Desmond, and also an amazing agent named uh, Will Francis. And the two of them gave me so much feedback on what worked, what didn't work in all of my various terrible drafts that I was working on. And I remember having a conversation with Sean about how to structure the book because I had all of these different ideas and these different pieces and he's like well here's how you braid them together you know think about it as like braiding dough and making a a complex braided piece of bread (laughs) and here you know identify your themes and you've already identified your themes they're in your book proposal right and uh here's you just need to think about how do you weave them together and that was really helpful advice, and I was able to go back and struggle some more and come up with, a, you know, a, a structure that made a lot more sense. But it was from the start of writing this book, from the start of the proposal, I wanted to do a bunch of complicated things, not just tell the story of what geneticists and archaeologists think are the are the different pieces of evidence for the peopling of the Americas, but also, you know, what do indigenous people think? How do these ideas intersect? How do they not intersect? Um, and what are the various complicated issues that we are discussing in the field right now? And to do that, I really had to give a history of the discipline of archeology span and history of the discipline of genetics. It's not a complete history. I'm not, I am not a, um, a science historian, but just to give people an introduction to how we collect the data we do and how we have historically done this work. And in many cases, it's not been a good story. It's been a very harmful series of practices, not not uniformly. There are some researchers who have done some really great work, but a lot of our research has come at the expense of indigenous peoples. And and it's really important, I think, to acknowledge that, to tell the complete story.
0: When you're talking about, sort, I believe the original language you used at yesterday's interview was like a complex and fraught sort of relationship with the history of archaeology and anthropology. Part of that also comes through with a lot of the early theories, particularly when we look at things like the mound builders and the degeneracy model, things like that, that were um, very Eurocentric. Do you feel like there's a duty, in a sense, as a researcher, as an academic, to sort of push back on these sort of antiquated models at this point?
1: Yes, at least I'd say that's true for me. I feel obligated because I have um, a platform now, you know, and, and I can I do write for the public a lot. I feel that I have an obligation to knock down misconceptions, misperceptions. Um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of that surrounding the early history of the lambs we call the Americas, right? If you just turn on the history channel, you will see a thousand documentaries about the Templars and the Americas or the early Europeans who came here or you know, the Bat Creek stone being evidence of this or that, you know, and it's, it's, it's all nonsense, <laughs> but, it, but I think what most people find, you know, a lot of people think, Oh, it's just fun, you know, to, to have these fun stories of Atlantis or ancient Templars coming to the Americas. Right. The problem is that it's part of a broader, longer history that's been with us since the start of colonialism in the Americas that's, situates the accomplishments of that takes the accomplishments of the first peoples of the americas away from their descendants right and inserts europeans or some other group there's a lot of different groups there into that history into that story where they don't belong right and so telling an accurate history means often pushing back on some of these modern day myths and um i'm working on an article on that right now uh, and so it's, it can be very frustrating because I feel like I have to do all the things at once, right? I've got to tell the story, but I've also got to push back on the bad stories. You know, we also are incumbent on, it's incumbent on all scholars to confront the, the racist practices with our own, within our own disciplines. There's a major conversation happening right now on that. Um, so it's, it's a lot to do, but it's, it's important work, I think, to do it.
0: Archaeology and anthropology seems to sort of evolve in these leaps and steps, Uh, that there becomes a overarching model that seems to have not general consensus, but wide support within the academic community until somebody else finds a new piece of evidence, finds a new site that sort of breaks that paradigm and then kind of puts things into flux until there's a new coalescing around the model. Do you think that in a certain sense, archaeology, anthropology followed a bit of like a quote unquote great man model where you have academics like Herodotica or George McJunkin who created a solid academic community around their theories that stand sort of the test of time, but then eventually kind of get eschewed when you start having more interdisciplinary work or new fields that sort of create a uh, unique critical perspective of the science. That wasn't there
1: before. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think there certainly has been, in the history of um, archaeology and anthropology, uh, definitely a series of paradigm shifts, and they have often been characterized. Each paradigm is characterized by a couple of great intellectuals, who mostly white men, um, <laughs> who, uh, who get. Um, you know, devoted followings and people listen to them. But, you know, that's true of every field, economy, um, sorry, economics and, you know, political science and literature, right? So I think that just from an academic perspective, that's, that's certainly quite common. I think what we're really seeing right now in the field, uh, the major shifts that we're seeing is an increasing awareness of... The ways in which some of these older research practices continue to uh, disempower native communities and and a discussion about how to how to address that and I think that has been a major change in the last couple of decades uh, a needed change as has been the um, increasing participation of uh, folks from uh, marginalized communities in academia itself so a lot, I'm very happy to say that I have now a lot of colleagues who are uh, geneticists and archaeologists from Indigenous backgrounds, and they bring um, incredibly important, critical perspectives um, and incredibly rigorous scholarship to the field. And so it's you know we only we need more of that, but it's it's really wonderful to see. I think we have a long way to go, but <laughs> but I definitely think that's a major change, at least as far as. Increasing participation and and, and, and um, visibility of of people from different backgrounds, other than you know the sort of um, white professor, you know white male professors, right? We've got a lot more diversity in the field. There are a lot of structures that still need to be addressed that that hinder participation, but of of other people. But um, I think it's it's definitely changing just a little bit too slowly, but we'll, we'll get there. I think.
0: So, in respects to the idea of the involvement and uh, respect of indigenous groups, it's really clear that origin wouldn't be what it is in its current form without that input. The recent ownership, in a sense, and indigenous sovereignty that was exhibited, particularly with the discovery of Shukaka, it seems interesting to me that now there is a bit more of a willingness to respect and incorporate the perspectives of Indigenous groups and really giving them the direct ownership of their sites, rather than saying this is something that we can, you know, remove items in situ and kind of bring them back to a museum just for us to study. Do you think that with things like Shukata and this continuing understanding to incorporate uh, indigenous groups will give people, uh, First Nations and uh, indigenous academics, more agency, but also help empower the communities as a whole by creating academic tourism and these sort of things that directly involve the groups.
1: I'm not sure what I think about that. I would say, In Origin, what I tried to do was bring in some of the really complicated discussions that are being held in the field about just that subject, right? Um, The importance of humility (laughs) among academics, non-Native academics, in approaching these subjects, and how do we do our research in a way that is respectful, and how do we do our research in a way that doesn't harm descendant communities, I don't have a perfect answer to how that can be done. I follow, as I think I said in in the the interview yesterday, I follow the the leadership of Indigenous and and non-Indigenous scientists and bioethicists and try to pay attention to these discussions. And what I wanted to do in the book was bring these discussions to people, because I don't think you see them in, in the sort of commercial literature as often as, as you do in the academic literature. And I think that's an important topic that the general public needs to be aware aware of. Where do the collections of human remains in museums come from and how did they get there, right? And, and what should be done with them? That is such a heavy subject, such a complicated topic. And so I kind of wanted to open that up in the book, because a lot of times what we know about what we think we know, we academics um, think we know about history comes directly from these collections. And and, and should the remains of ancestors continue to be studied, um, if it is harming Indigenous Communities, their descendants. This is a big topic, so I go through that in the book and and try to bring in perspectives not just from scientists, but also from descendant communities. And but I also wanted to highlight because in in talking about this subject and and research practices and how we do this work in a more respectful way, I think we need to look at the examples of not only bad cases but also good cases. And so, like, where have Non-native researchers and communities form partnerships that are beneficial and respectful and trusting and have done the work together. And often when I found studies to include in here, there were way more than I than I actually was able to get into the book. The, The common theme in these was respect for sovereignty, active participation, whatever that looks like to the tribe or the community in the research process. And co-interpretation of results and presenting perhaps the narrative that the archaeologists might interpret alongside the narrative that perhaps the community might interpret bringing in their own traditional knowledge to that and presenting these side by side right mm-hmm. they may agree they may not agree but making sure that their respect is given to both and i found that this deep study of these different best practices, um, both the good ones and then also the bad examples, um, has really informed my own research. And so I try to take that those practices to my own work as well.
0: You also bring up a concept that you want to try and rephrase in a sense, but one term referred to as failed migrations. Mm, yes. And so I think we just sort of assume the migration to be following one of these people in models, whether it's Bering land bridge or the you know pacific coastal migra- migratory models but there's actually you know so many other groups that you know made these different journeys that otherwise did not contribute to the modern indigenous genome why is it important to sort of also be respectful of these sort of lost tribes these lost cultures that help add greater knowledge to what I like to call the prehistoric human narrative.
1: So one of the neat things about genetics is that because it because of a person's popula their ancestral history is archived in their genome, and using the tools of population genetics, we can reconstruct Biological relationships between individuals in the past, in the present, and then also use that to model historical events in biological historical events. So, one of the most surprising things, when we're we, our field has been doing this in the last you know decade or so on a massive scale in some cases, one of the big surprising insights into history, human history, is how many um, populations their DNA is not present in present day people, that there are no present day biological descendants of some
0: population. For all of our listeners, what you may not know is that Professor Raff was actually my martial arts instructor (laughs) about 16 years ago at Monroe County Martial Arts, which was owned by another Big Talk uh, interview alumnus, uh, Mr. Steve Scott. One, beyond just an appreciation for martial arts, which we both share, obviously martial art takes a lot of discipline. Do you think that getting so involved in another hobby that has this structure, rigor, a desire that requires patience, practice, and uh, attention to detail helps set you up? In a position of success for further academic studies in near future, and uh, the sometimes frustrating and flailing process of writing a best-selling book.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I can't speak for other people, so I'll just say for me, yes. Um, the lessons that I took from my life of martial arts study—I started martial arts when I was very young, very very young. It gave me not just you know some physical abilities, but also the self-knowledge that I could work towards a very remote goal, you know, whether it be a black belt or a book, (laughs) right? Uh, And put in the patient, patiently put in the work every day, even on days when I don't feel it, even on days when it's really hard to have the, um, the confidence that it will get done with enough persistence. And the, also the, I guess, the self-knowledge that I can be disciplined about the thing, right? Um, and I got to say, the process for writing this book was very, very physical for me um, in the sense that I was literally sitting at my desk and day after day writing, and that I had to give up a lot of things, including martial arts study and including a lot of exercise, I hate to say it, in order to get this done. That was very challenging for me because I like to be physically fit, and I am not (laughs) anymore as a result of, of all the time
0: I spent writing. So I want to thank our wonderful guest, Professor Jennifer Raff of the University of Kansas at Lawrence. Her book is Origin, a Genetic History of the Americas...